You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello, this is Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Emma Nelson, and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Hulu. Asumir formalmente las competencias del Ejecutivo Nacional. The man who would be president of Venezuela, but how does the country solve its crisis? As 20 die in protests and the leader of the opposition declares himself in charge, we look at a country on the point of spiralling out of control. Also coming up, finally, a warm welcome to the Republic of Northern Macedonia. Greece agrees to back a name change for its neighbour. We'll ask if this is really the end of a 27-year-long row. Plus, what are you putting in your Brexit box? As one British company includes freeze-dried fajitas as a life essential, we'll be discussing what we'd not be without when the EU turns the taps off. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. And a very warm welcome to Studio One here at Midori House. It's Friday, so our guests are very much in-house from Monocle 24. Malcolm Chartoglian, Paige Reynolds, and holding the fort in our Toronto Bureau, Art Bureau Chief there, Tomas Lewis. Welcome all. A UN human rights official has warned that Venezuela could be a country on the brink of spinning out of control. 20 people have died during protests this week, and two men now claim to be president. The incumbent, Nicolas Maduro, and the leader of the opposition, Juan Guaido. And the outside world is splitting in two over who to support. Well, let's begin in Toronto. Thomas, from all, all intents and purposes, Venezuela is at the brink of something enormous, isn't it? It is, and that's definitely the view from the Canadian government as well. It's really, I think, tried, uh, in its own eyes at least, to sort of lead the charge uh, on uh, sort of trying to bring some kind of reform to Venezuela from the outside. At least it has sought to take a leadership role in the Lima Group, which was formed in 2017 with a group of Latin American nations uh, looking at bringing democracy back to Venezuela. Um, The latest developments over the past sort of 24 hours again Canada has been pretty vociferous in sort of showing its support for the opposition leader and this new sort of presidency if we can call it that at this stage um, and I think you know this is absolutely sort of a moment of, of I guess crisis in many ways but also it seems that Venezuela is now becoming a crucible for international powers who want to have their stake in the kind of country Venezuela should mean uh, should be uh, excuse me as well. We obviously have Russia and China on one side of the argument, the US, Canada and lots of Latin American nations on the other side too. Um, so it really does feel like a sort of, um, we're returning to sort of an, an era from times gone by really, where the great international powers are sort of meeting in the crucible of a very sort of localised crisis, uh, be it a national one in Venezuela. So still lots of questions on the table I think at this moment of sort of the unknown in Venezuela. Malcolm Thomas has just very much laid out the international problem that we have a a crucible a huge huge problem a crisis in Venezuela that everybody is now beginning to wade into and it's all started arguably because of Donald Trump yes so just give a bit of background the US has had a strong foothold in Venezuela for much of the 20th century it's a good strategic point um 
It's a very oil-rich country, and the U.S. has had stakes there for a long time. Since Hugo Chavez's ascension in 1999, the relationship has been virtually non-existent. It's been it's been an inimical one. Um, and things have reached such a crescendo in the country that there is uh, enough popular support for someone to effectively take control. And, and, uh, and the U.S. government is effectively, it's quite clear, trying to to create an opposition change. And it, it, and as Thomas said, this sort of goes back to that time in the 20th century when the US was installing puppet governments in uh, in Guatemala and, and Chile, uh, Nicaragua and, and so forth. Um, and I think it's very sort of unapologetic and very obvious about the fact that it's, it's, it's involved in this um, sort of mini coup. And as everybody else swirls around on the outside deciding what to do with Venezuela. In Venezuela itself, Paige, we have Nicolas Maduro, who has kept this terrible grip on his people. He's impoverished them, he's divided them, he's caused millions to flee. And then up pops this man, Juan Guaido, whose name had been totally unknown to most of us in the outside world until yesterday, this 35-year-old fresh-faced guy who says, Forget everyone else, now I'm in charge. Yeah, it's it's a very uh, interesting and, and slightly worrying situation. You know, Venezuela does need change. I mean, it's been in a sort of situation of, of, of economic crisis since about 2013, food shortages, medicine shortages, um, you know, uh, hyperinflation. Um, but yes, a lot of people are asking, who is Guaido? I mean, he's a he's a 35-year-old trained engineer. Um, he was only elected to the National Assembly three years ago. Um, but it, essentially, as a sort of less, high-profile opposition leader, he was sort of able to work his way up, I guess, without causing too much fuss. And and a lot of people are saying that he's sort of been very heavily mentored by another high-profile opposition leader, uh, Leopold Lopez. Um, so I think he's got sort of backing from, from the right people and because of his slightly less high-profile status, has been able to weave himself up. And then clearly the US has got sort of an arm in there and they're, they're saying that that's an option as well for change. And, you know, he declares himself president and three three minutes later Mike Pence is, is sort of saying that he recognises it it's, it's a sort of a crazy situation and then Canada wades in Thomas and I was interested when you talk about this this group called the Lima group because it's not something that I have talked about or read extensively about which effectively says not necessarily that it, was, you know, it wasn't worth paying attention to but it didn't seem to really resonate among the Venezuelans much no and I think that sort of perhaps been the trouble of the grouping so far. That's not to say that they have been sort of meeting fairly regularly and sort of sharing information fairly regularly too. Um, it's worth noting that the US isn't a part of that official grouping, but as Paige referred to, you know, Mike Pence coming out um, actually sort of kind of makes it seem that the US is singing from the same song sheet as the Lima group. I think, you know, to give a bit of Canadian context, the Trudeau government, since it came into office in 2015, has very much sought to sort of insert itself pretty firmly within sort of international bodies or international frameworks and try to take leadership roles within them rather than sort of taking a sort of more boisterous sort of unilateral stance on things. It wants to contribute pretty firmly, but it wants 
to do so in the framework of these sort of international bodies, even if, say, some of them, as you say, don't have sort of um, a huge amount of traction in the sort of international consciousness as perhaps the Lima Group, which was founded in 2017, um, has at the moment. Perhaps the Lima Group is about, however, given that with the, the, this uh, pretty sort of new sort of crucial chapter, it seems, in Venezuela, about to sort of maybe um, sort of get its teeth, if you like, in the international discussion um, at this crucial moment in Venezuela. Malcolm, one, one international body was called upon for help yesterday. Um, it was the UN Security Council. The US said, we want an emergency meeting because of this. And Russia said, no, it's an internal problem. They said, Not to, nothing to do with us. Uh, the, the US's gain here is Russia's loss, quite simply. Um, the, the relationship between Venezuela and the US has been terrible, absolutely terrible since 1999. And Russia's been able to profit. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a Chavez's and Maduro's government is a left-wing socialist government. It's, it's far more inclined to maintain relationships with Russia, which also has an interest in its oil reserves and finding a foothold in South America. Um, so, yes, of course, Russia is going to say, no, no, let's leave it up to them. But what it's really, it, Russia is really hoping for is that Maduro will stay in power. And yet we have so many people who are taking to the streets, not just supporting Maduro, but those who support Guido. It's, it's those people who, who find themselves perhaps with a voice that they haven't had for a very long time, Paige. No, no, certainly. I, I, th- I think sort of um, you'd almost have to be there really to understand the uh, the people's relationship to, to Guido. Um, but he's going to have a lot of issues. I mean, he, he doesn't have, and, and able to get that support, he doesn't have the support of the military. That would be crucial in Venezuela. Um, he doesn't have the support of the Supreme Court. They're also stacked with Maduro's loyalists, um, one of the largest state oil companies, which accounts for most of Venezuela's export earnings. They're still sort of siding with Maduro. So he's got a lot of challenges ahead of him, not just from the people, but from sort of the, the, the structures uh, within Venezuela. And the army as well, which is still largely loyal to Maduro. You're listening to Midori House. We're live on Monocle 24. The time here in London is just approaching 18.10. And we head to Toronto now to get the latest on the case of Men Wenju, the Huawei ex- executive who's currently being held in Vancouver, awaiting the result of an extradition request by the US. While Ms Men sits and ponders her future, her case has caused a row between Canada's ambassador to China and the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Thomas, what's happened? Well, uh, to sort of a long story short, Emma, Meng Wangzhou was arrested in Vancouver on the 1st of December and she's sort of put Canada, if you like, kind of at the centre of the ongoing standoff between the United States and Canada. The US wants her extradited to stand trial in the US um, for allegedly breaching its sanctions um, with Iran. Uh, now, the reason this is a difficult position for Canada is that it has just come out of a very rancorous process of renegotiating the NAFTA treaty uh, which really saw US-Canada relations uh, which is a very historically sort of important one economically and diplomatically sink to its lowest levels uh, for a time that many can really remember. Um, also since Justin Trudeau came into office in 2015 he's really gone very hard on trying to forge closer relations with China um, specifically in a sort of free trade context. Uh, this case really has put it in a very difficult uh, position uh, but with both 
parties. Now, what we saw this week, the latest chapter of this, was that Beijing came out and called directly on the US to withdraw its extradition request uh, for Meng Wanzhou. Now, I think many commentators here in Canada felt that that was sort of taking the heat off Canada and Ottawa slightly, uh, in that now it was sort of a direct sort of game, that it sort of, you know, could sort of step back a little bit in this very delicate sort of diplomatic dance that it was effectively the middleman in. Then, step in China's uh, sorry, Canada's ambassador to China, John McCullum. He, on Wednesday, gave this rather extraordinary press conference to uh, exclusively to the Chinese-speaking press in Beijing, where he effectively seemed to side with China's uh, sort of calls that he said that uh, he thought that Meng Wanzhou had a very strong case in, fa- in fighting this extradition request. This caused a huge sort of flurry uh, of commentary and kind of diplomatic panic, really, in in Canada because it wasn't clear whether he was acting on a request from Ottawa or whether he was effectively going rogue. Now, the leader of the opposition here in Canada, he came out very forcefully and said, well, if I was Prime Minister, I would sack John McCullum on the spot. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau sort of uh, poo-pooed that kind of suggestion, tried to quell it. However, John McCullum, the ambassador to China, did eventually apologise for her, his remarks, saying they were slightly miscalculated. Um, but all this comes in the context of a very febrile environment. And we do, of course, have a Canadian citizen, uh, Robert John Schellenberg, who is facing the death penalty in China, which also was kind of brought out in the context of this Huawei extradition request. Uh, so really, it couldn't be a more fraught diplomatic situation here that only got more so this week, thanks to Canada's ambassador in Beijing. Well, it's this an astonishing uh, escalation, isn't it now, um, Melcon, that we, we've heard all that toing and froing internally between the, uh, the Canadian ambassador and the Canadian prime minister. But as Thomas just mentioned there, this becomes an issue of whether it's all right to travel freely. The, the Canadians have offered, have warned their residents that if they go to China, they could be subject to what they think was described as ar- arbitrary detainment. Um, it really does suddenly start to change the way that people can move around the world, doesn't it? Yes. Uh Canada sits very highly up on the sort of passport freedom index and I think that's embedded. It's an expected part of the culture and of being Canadian that you move around the world freely and the same um, in Europe. Um, I think yeah, Canadian nationals would be um, very, very upset to find themselves detained or questioned, uh, their passports withheld to be spied on. Um, so yeah, of, of course this is um, yeah, it's, 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 an, it's a very pressing matter. It's it's a it's a real worry as well if you're something like I don't know a journalist. I mean the the people who've been arrested and held in China at the moment, the Canadians. One of them is is a diplomat. Uh, but Paige, uh, I know of at least one person who's been warned that the next time they go in a professional co- capacity to Hong Kong, are arguably, you know, the last sprinkling of Western Western culture in 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 China. They've been told in the next couple of weeks they will be having their phone tapped, they will be bugged, they will be followed wherever they go simply because they are they're a journalist. And as a journalist yourself, before we came on this program, we just went, I love the fact that I'm invisible. Well, actually, you might not be. Yeah, I mean, I think we were saying, you know, you were saying, oh, am I worried about about that happening to me? And I said, no, of course not. I'm 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 sure I'm, I'm much too irrelevant. But I think you know anyone that is that is working in the media is of course under immense suspicion. But what I would say about China is if, if you're sort of worried about getting your phone tapped, I'm pretty sure they're doing that anyway. Um, I, I'm, I'm I mean, not, hands I'm up here sure. who's got a Huawei phone. <laughs> I no don't. One. No, no. I do not. Thomas, I, I can't not. see your hands, but is anybody in Canada rushing to the shop to get a Huawei phone anytime soon? 
Well, no, Huawei itself, <laughs> just another sort of, you know, twist in the tail here was a controversial presence here. And Justin Trudeau found lots of uh, pressure coming uh, from various quarters uh, asking for him to halt kind of any new sort of infrastructure investment by Huawei. He was actually quite slow in sort of making any kind of response to that, obviously, because the sort of finances involved in those kind of deals are pretty significant to sort of any nation's economy, really. But no, there's definitely been a cooling off of, of interest for Huawei products, Emma, I think it's fair to say, here in Canada for the past few months. Um, there's this in- interesting thing, though, about the, the, the suspicions now of the, of the tech world um, page. And, and we're now getting governments who are feeling more emboldened to say, don't invest in Huawei. We're not going to mm. let Huawei come to our 5G network. Mm. This, this difficult diplomatic round between the United States and China over tariffs, trade wars, this, that and the other. The fact is, I find it quite astonishing that all the, every other country doesn't say anything and then one person goes and then suddenly everybody starts to say, well, we're not having Huawei, we're not having Huawei. And it's just that sort of global tipping point that everybody tries to reach, isn't it? Yeah, it does seem like that, that this, this whole uh, incident has been a bit of a, a domino effect situation. Um, but I think, you know, Huawei have have been sort of arousing a, a few suspicions for, for a while, and and actually it's not so much the smartphones; it's actually their sort of uh, involvement in telecoms infrastructure, so providing five G for various networks. Um, the company's been banned uh, from bidding for government contracts in the US um, because the the intelligence services have raised questions about Huawei's links to China's ruling Communist Party. Um, BT have also had their suspicions in the UK. The equivalent's been removed from communications systems, even though Huawei's invested about three. Billion billion in the UK. Um, And, you know, federal prosecutors in Seattle also are investigating Huawei for intellectual property theft, which is actually something that um, sort of China is often uh, uh, under sort of uh, the close eye for that that sort of behaviour. But I think sort of suspicions uh, that sort of in the realm of China and tech are are becoming a little bit of a trend. I mean, I remember even discussing um, Google and their sort of uh, foray into into creating a sort of censored um, Chinese search engine. And, you know, that that caused massive uproar in in Google and Silicon Valley because, you know, how can you sort of go there and because of their sort of suspected spying capacities. I mean, you, you only sort of have to look at uh, the Xinjiang province and, and the Uyghurs and all the information we're sort of slowly eking out from there to look at the mass surveillance state and, and their capacities um, to sort of understand why people are thinking, oh, maybe, you know, maybe we'll pull back oh, just let, a little. Let's not worry here in the United Kingdom, they, at the Chinese own Thames water. <laughs> they're, in, they're in charge of uh, building the high-speed two-rail link, and apparently they might have something to do with our nuclear power soon. So everybody, Seth, rest easy in your beds. <laughs> You're listening to Monocle Twenty Four. This is Midori House. I'm Emma Nelson, and Malcolm Chachoglian, Paige Reynolds, and Thomas Lewis are chewing over the week's events. In just a few minutes' time, we'll be asking you, what are you putting in your Brexit box? Stay with us. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. 
Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. Welcome back to Studio One. If you've just joined us, it's Emma Nelson here and you're listening to Midori House. In the studio, going over the day's events, Malcolm Chartoglian and Paige Reynolds from Monocle 24 and in Toronto, our Bureau Chief, Tomas Lewis. In a moment, we compile a Brexit box as the countdown to Britain's global excommunication begins. But first, Grace's Parliament has narrowly agreed that the nation which called itself Macedonia with the breakup of the former Yugoslavia will now be called the Republic of North Macedonia. It's taken 27 years, and although the agreement is now official, for some it's far from settled. Malcolm, 27 years to discuss, but we have to go a long, 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 long way back, don't we? I'm happy to announce that I am in the same room as a classics graduate. You are a rare and beautiful, beautiful creature. Are we? Yes, you are. <laughs> and totally and it's wonderful <laughs> to know rare. that some people have decided to take the time to have a look at that part of the world. And so you are now tasked with explaining to us why this row that's nearly brought down the Greek government dates back to Alexander the Great. Yes. So the name of Macedonia is most strongly associated with Alexander the Great and uh, the, the Philips that preceded him, the Philips of Macedonia, which is around 4th and 5th century BC, or even further back. Um, that's like the gemstone of, 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 of Greek culture. Uh, Alexander obviously uh, controlled all of, all of Greece, Turkey went into India. Uh, yeah, he's like the, one of the flagship fi figures of Greek culture. So the question here is one of cultural appropriation because the modern-day Macedonians are not, it's strictly speaking, they're not ethnically Greek, they're effectively S Slavic, um, and the Slavs came into the region of Macedonia in, around the 6th century AD. So that, that's, they're effectively saying, you, well, you can't appropriate that culture, but modern-day Macedonia does occupy a large chunk of the historical region of Macedonia. And because... The Greek uh, region of Macedonia. Yes. Right. And because Alexander the Great's kingdom was so large and expanded so quickly, you know, depending on what map you look on, modern-day Macedonia certainly occupies what we would historically call the kingdom of Macedonia. And the, uh, the issue is that you're getting into this very dirty conversation of you're by blood not Greek, therefore you can't have our culture... But, you know, that area has been such a melting pot. It was Greek, then it was Roman, then it was Byzantine, which is a, a, obviously a Greco-Roman culture. Then it's Ottoman, then it's Yugoslav. So, you know, it, you can't really unravel this question. You just have to come to a sensible agreement, which I think they have. They're effectively saying you can relate to the, to the culture and the name, but you can't make full claim over it. But two-thirds of the Greeks still don't want this change, do they, Paige? They were, they were yeah. marching up and down the streets in Athens on Sunday. No, and I, and I think sort of, sort of quickly further, further to Melkon's point, I think um, that they're not just sort of appropriating history by saying we were also part of Macedonia. They're, they're saying sort of Alexander the Great is ours. They're really taking ownership of him. I mean, until recently, their airport was named after Alexander the Great. And I, I, there's sort of these crazy uh, pictures, if you look up, sort of statues of Alexander the Great as well, sort of th throughout um, the capital city. And, and I think it's less them saying, oh, you know, we, we also share this by really sort of... Uh, I don't know, capitalising on Alexander the Great as, as a big selling point. And I think that's sort of where a lot of, of Greek people had an issue. And clearly they still do have an issue because, like we said, two thirds of the population were against this name change because it still has the word 
Macedonia in it and it only passed really narrowly in Parliament and, and it's caused massive ruptures in Parliament as well. Um, we saw, uh, I think just last week, um, Panos Kamenos uh, quit the coalition over the row. Um, uh, Tsipras uh, had to survive a, a no-confidence motion um, and I think for a lot of, of Greek people and certainly the ones I've asked, um, it looks like Tsipras kind of just wants this sort of foreign policy success story a little bit. You know, he, he's actually quite unpopular. He's unpopular with the people that voted him because he hasn't gone far enough on the sort of socialist agenda. Um, he's unpopular with sort of, you know, medium and sort of uh, uh, large-sized business people because of the heavy taxation. Um, and now he's unpopular because of this and because it seems like he's just doing it for sort of political leverage. There's one guy who's very, very, very happy this evening. He's a man <laughs> called Matthew Nimitz and his life work, his <laughs> life's work is done, isn't it, Pace? It is. Matthew Nimitz um, is the UN mediator who has been working on this name dispute since since day one for a quarter of a century. Um, so Matthew Nimitz, he might be able to go home. So that's a it's a good day for Matthew. I, I, I can just imagine them coming up with a name, a Republic of Northern Macedonia, and him saying, "Guys, I floated that idea 25 years ago. Yeah. Why we're we only coming back to it now?" It's 1998, and I knew exactly where I was, and I came up with that idea, and they laughed at me. I really, really am looking forward to the Nimitz family's reunion. As you know, they might have, he might have kids who are saying, you know. Dad, where were you? Well, I've been sorting out a name. It's terrible. I mean, the, the conditions, though, attached to this agreement are pretty hefty, aren't they, Melcon? The new Republic of North Macedonia will review the status of any public buildings or monuments that refer to ancient Greek history. Crikey Moses. And on the need to refrain from revisionism in any form, seen as dealing with Greek fears that the Macedonians might have designs on their territory. Do the Greeks really think that the Macedonians are going to charge over and... Well, I steal think, stuff. I think a lot of it's scaremongering, but you must realise that you know, as for, when Macedonia came about in nineteen was nineteen ninety one, it was a former former communist state on the doorstep of Greece, and of course they're going to be wary of this new nation that's suddenly making cultural and potentially territorial appropriations. You know, by having the name Macedonia, you by extension make claims on everything else that is Macedonia. Uh, a lot of it is, of course, scaremongering and, and Greek nationalism. Right. Um, so. I think it's a very sensible conclusion, and and also, I mean, we must we mustn't forget what what this name change dispute was was hindering the Macedonian people from achieving. They're now going to be able to apply for NATO membership and for EU membership, and that's really important, particularly particularly when Russia has such a hand in the Balkans at the moment. You're going to kind of see this sort of Balkan state that that is going to be kind of under hopefully the wing of the West a little bit more. And there's also going to be a vacancy come March the twentieth, <laughs> come March the thirtieth, because uh, Malcolm was using the word scaremonger which lets me sort of limber up for our last item because a certain kind of case study has been doing the rounds in the media this week with just nine weeks to go until this little island that we're sitting on cuts itself from the ties that bind it to the EU. Some have taken it upon themselves to get ready. I'm not talking about the likes of Airbus, Nissan and Ford. I'm talking about people like a face group group called the 48% Preppers. They're stockpiling medicine, food, household supplies and toilet paper, just in case everything goes to the dogs on March the 30th. Malcolm, what's in your Brexit box? What's in my Brexit box? Um, I'm not quite sure. Lots of... I, I don't know what you pack, because if if you've 
got into the stage where you need a survival kit. You've probably, you know, the water's not flowing. No, but, the, t- the Chinese own that. We're fine. Okay, okay. We're, abs- we're okay. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. I guess lots of, tinned, lots of tinned food, lots of peanut butter, high high calorie food. Pretend you're not yeah, doing butter Arctic is exploration. Not European. Well done. I mean, it's interesting. And that it's you're called say- Palm oil. Damn. Not, not, palm, not uh, European because there is a company selling a Brexit box, which, I mean, get ready for this, ladies and gentlemen. 60 portions of free, freeze dried British favourites. It's a chicken tikka, so English. Chili con carne, English. Macaroni cheese, English. Chicken fajitas, what? 48, 48 portions of dried mince and chicken, fire lighter liquid and an emergency water filter. There's nothing EU in That's that, so is That's so luxury for a survival kit. Honestly. I don't know, I, I don't know about freeze-dried fajita. I think I'd, I'd sort of just use the fire lighter liquid over <laughs> myself if I had to eat that for 30 days or even if I had to sort of reconcile the fact that I was the kind of person that bought a Brexit survival box. Well, I mean, it makes me just think I mean, actually that anybody who, who thinks that freeze-dried fajitas is, is a good <laughs> idea. Frankly, I don't know if we deserve to be part of the European Union. Okay, I Hands up here. I am kind of stockpiling. Um, the reason, the things that I am stockpiling is because uh, I'm a middle-aged mummy and that's what we do. Um, and I have started to accidentally collect a lot of quite good quality middle-class things like pasta, good quality pasta, good quality um, tinned tomatoes and nice jam. Because I know that we're not, it's not that it's going to run out, but it's going to cost more and I'm so cheap. My notes just say good qual cheese. So <laughs> good I think that's, I think that's where I'm at. Um, Thomas, you don't need to because you're in the land of milk and honey over in Toronto. But what's in your Brexit box? Or are you just laughing at us all? <laughs> well, I am laughing at you all, Thank yes. You. But if you're sort of stockpiling all the things that won't be able to get into the UK after the doors close on the 29th of March, you've got me thinking about what won't get out of the UK. My favourite things from my home turf, of course. Well, we won't get Canada. out. We're stuck. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. So the things I would miss about the UK that would be trapped on the island are custard creams, the, the mm. biscuit of choice for, for many a uh, Britain, I think, and HP sauce as well. I mean, the, the Canadian HP shelves sauce isn't are, English anymore. It's Heinz. Oh, oh, no. It's Heinz. You're all right. You're fine. Thank God then. All right. No, you're okay <laughs> well, I was then. It's American. That... They, there, were, there were almost <laughs> riots on the streets of Birmingham when HP was, was bought. So there we go. Doubt we'll, we'll ever get right. so, frankly. It's yes. a, it's a <laughs> national treasure. I imagine a lot of these people are buying foreign-produced food. <laughs> or is there a guarantee that all these products are made in the UK? These are Remainers, actually. This is not okay. Brexiteers, because Brexiteers think it's all going to be absolutely fine. Isn't it We'll just, get along famously. We'll be absolutely great. <laughs> Nothing to worry about at all, anyway. That brings us to the end of Midori House, and thanks to our producer, Augustin Machilari, our researcher, Fernanda Augusta Pacheco, and Martha Libri, too, and our studio manager, David Stevens. More music next, and then at 1900, it's The Menu with Mark. Marcus Hippie enjoying food while we still can. And we have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time on Monday. That's at 1800 London time. And listen to our back catalogue whenever you like on monocle24.com. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, all my guests, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs>